Thanks for listening to our podcast. The following is a ministry of Orchard Bible Church in Centennial, Colorado. Please join us on Sunday mornings. For more details, visit us online at orchardbible.org. Today's scripture reading is from Amos chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, and then again down in verses 9 and 10. This is the word of God. Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel, and against the whole family that I brought up out of the land of Egypt. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. And in verse 9, proclaim to the strongholds in Ashdod and to the strongholds in the land of Egypt and say, assemble yourselves on the mountains of Samaria and see the great tumults within her and the oppressed in her midst. They do not know how to do right, declares the Lord, those who store up violence and robbery in their strongholds. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, a chance to speak it today. And Lord, we pray this Old Testament passage that may seem very obscure to us uh, has much truth, much benefit for us, even this day. And we pray, Lord, that you would lead us and guide us into a greater understanding of your heart for the world and your direction for us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. There will be some bulletins if you need, raise your hand if you need a bulletin. In 1849, Jean-Baptiste Carr said, plus qu'à change, plus c'est la même chose. That's all you get for me having middle school French and not doing so well back then. But you probably recognize the words. The more things change, the more things stay the same. My 20-year-old isn't convinced of that. 72 hours ago, he looked me in the eye and said, Dad, things have changed a lot since you were a little kid. And he's right. But there's a sense in which I could follow almost any one of you around and listen to every word you've said, perhaps even in just the course of one day, and hear you say the words, everything's changing in the world. And then maybe hours, maybe even minutes later, hear you say, Same old, same old. The topic that we might address would be a source of whether you decide things are changing and and just nothing's the same. And then in other ways, you might well find that that you just see the same patterns in the world. The same, same old things keep repeating themselves. When I looked up this phrase, the more things change, the more things stay the same. I was actually reading a healthcare article being in the healthcare business. And the article said, the author actually said, the, said, said this said early on in this little article. He said, I typed in that phrase, 170 years old, this phrase, and then I put a comma and I put healthcare. Five and a half million hits. You could put it, you could put the comma and put in your own words in business, in parenting, being a student, being a teenager, I'm sure, and have a plethora 
of opinions and observations about how things change and yet, in many ways, stay the same. One of my patients just recently was 108 years old. I took much solace in that. That means I'm only halfway done. But I was just surprised thinking that, that at 108 years old, World War I had not even started when she was born. Think of the change this woman has seen in her lifetime. Wow. But would she say that human nature has changed during that time? Well, maybe we could go a little further back. Has human nature changed since the Civil War? What if we went back to the 1100s where St. Francis and Genghis Khan both lived? Has human nature changed since then? That's a long time. Since Jesus and Nero walked this earth in the first century. How about since Adam and Eve? Has human nature changed? It's a good question. How about God? Has he changed? Has his nature, has his standards changed over the years? There's a lot we've discovered. Science and technology have revealed a lot of things. Has he been enlightened and been able to adjust his opinion about things? Have Dr. Freud or Dr. Phil helped him see a little bit more about what human life is really like? Well, the scriptures say God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And Solomon, presumably the wisest one that ever walked this earth, said everything has just been seen under the sun. So I guess the question is, what can a fig, not a pig, a fig farmer from 12 miles south of Jerusalem in 750 B.C. say to us that's relevant? I think if he's talking about human nature, I think if he's talking about God's character and his standards, he can say a lot to us. Let's see what he has to say in Amos chapter 3. He begins in chapters, verses 1 and 2, with talking about God's people and their responsibility to do right by others. He says the words right from the scriptures, Hear this word the Lord has spoken against you. He goes on to say, You only have I known. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. What a dreadful sentence. Hear this word the Lord has spoken against you. This was judgment coming to the northern kingdom of Israel. Now, the refresher can be kept to about 20 seconds, reminding you that Israel was, was the Jewish people that came out of Egypt, started in a privileged position when Joseph was in charge, ended up as slaves, come out under Moses, wander in a desert for 40 years, kind of lost finding their way. God directs them into what is the land of Israel. The borders have changed many times over the years. But Israel, in, in where you know in the Middle East, reaches a high point with Kings David and, and with Solomon. Time when they were at their best place on the world stage in terms of power and wealth and influence. But then after Solomon this northern kingdom breaks off from the southern kingdom. You know it as Israel and Judah during this era. And so Amos, who is from Judah, a little south of Jerusalem, 
is directed by God to travel north a few dozen miles and speak against the northern kingdom, what God has to say to them. God reminds them that they have been favored. He has given them his attention. He has given them protection. He's given them his word. And now God says, you will be punished. You have ignored my standards and counsel for too long. You have done what I abhor. And the rest of this passage begins to unfold what God abhors and how they have failed. Second point in your outline, God has always hated arrogance and materialism that is achieved by oppressing the four. But on the way in Amos' speech to them, to getting to the details of where they have failed and, and how they have so bothered the very soul of God, he asks a question at the end of uh, verse 6. Does disaster come to a city if the Lord has not done it? There's two cities that are in this passage. One is Samaria and the other is Bethel. Now, Samaria, you and I tend to think of Samaria in terms of Jesus' day, you know, seven or 800 years later. We tend to think of a region that was between the Sea of Galilee, 70 miles north of Jerusalem, and Jerusalem. We tend to think of key figures that Jesus encountered along the way. We think of the woman of the well, a Samaritan, John 4. Jesus was there because he, like the Jews from the Sea of the Galilee area, would need to travel three times a year down to, to Jerusalem. That's a 70-mile journey. So he encountered Samaritans, bothered his disciples that he would be talking with them. Because that was after the Samaritans had gotten their name and this region because they would be hauled off soon after Amos, 30 years later, be, be hauled off to Assyria, intermingle and marriage, children there, and then come back sometime later. But Samaria here, for the most part, is a city. It's a city a little bit north of Jerusalem in the southern part of the northern kingdom. It was on a little bit of a hillside, surrounded by some bigger hills around it. It was, it was a place that was not that big, the, the wall around it was about two and a half miles. It was a place of real luxury. It was a place of great houses, this pasture, passage reminds us of. A place in which ivory was, was imported and ivory was paneled in different places. You know, apparently go to some of the museums in Israel and, and different places in the world and see this ornate, significant pieces of ivory. We're not talking about a couple of old piano keys, middle C from your grandma's piano. We're talking about ornate, significant pieces of ivory that years later were dug up. It was a place of much wealth, of much confidence in self, of a sense of a stronghold perched on this hillside, that was self-sufficient. And then Bethel, 25 miles away, was a place in which, because the northern kingdom didn't want to have to travel south into now enemy territory, even though they were kin, didn't want to travel there, they set up their own worship. They didn't want to go down to the temple that had been established as God had directed. But now they had set up their own temple, and really their own form of worship, their own priests, for the most part, we're not even 
God's, God's servants, self-serving. Well, 30 years later, both of these cities would be destroyed. 30 years after the writing of Amos, more or less, they would be de- de- demolished. So in one sense, this, this verse 6, does, does a city find disaster unless the Lord has done it is something they need to hear. When it happens, think back to this sermon. This sermon that Amos is giving them and be reminded that God has superintended. He has seen this come about. And he'll use an enemy army from a little bit northeast, the Assyrians, to come and do it. But do we need to hear that today? Do we need to hear a question like, does disaster come unless the Lord has done it? I wonder if we've kind of gone the other direction of what you and I might find if we went to some rather remote places in the third world, found a tribe that still, when illness comes or, 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 or flood comes or, or, or the crops don't grow, blames an angry ancestor, blames voodoo or curse, blames the gods. Have we gone so far opposite that that we have erred just as significantly? Where, where if floods and famine come, we look to meteorologists and other sciences, scientists to explain the issue. If there's cancer or cerebral palsy, we look to doctors to explain why it happened. We look to medical researchers to say, how do we get out of this? When it comes to when government goes bad, it happens in a place where there's dictators and not a democracy. We say, if they only had democracy things would be okay if we look at things in our own country and say government's gone bad we say we just didn't get out the vote there's a tendency it seems to have swayed so far from what might happen in other places of the world that, that we're, we, we don't even see God behind what is happening in so much of the world in one sense we have to have such caution to, to say we know just what God is doing, we have to have caution of saying, I know the things in Ukraine are because. I hope you're as uncomfortable as I am of going there and saying, I know exactly what God's thinking. But what a mistake we would make to say, God's the blind watchmaker that's gone off. And there's no part that he's playing of superintending, whether it's allowing this to happen or actually causing this to happen. This God who is never the cause of evil can use floods and famines to punish. He can use illness to get our attention. And he can certainly, as has been the case many times in world history, use rulers that have no heart for him he guides the king's heart, it says in the Proverbs. Well, let's look to see what happens in verses 9 and 10. As God calls some pagan nations to the grandstand of looking in on the Samaria of this ancient city. Verses 9 and 10. Proclaim to the strongholds in Ashdod, the strongholds in the land of Egypt, and say, Assemble yourselves on the mountains of Samaria. See the great tumults within her. And the oppressed in her midst, they do not know how to do right. Those who store up violence and robbery in their strongholds. 
Have you heard of the parable of the bad Samaritans? Well, it's not a parable here. This is the real deal. This is the people in this city, representative of what's around them. It's the lead city. It's the capital city of this northern kingdom. And their behavior and their choices, their character, their dishonoring of God is something that has gotten God's attention for a long time. And he has been abhorred for a long time at what has happened there. So much so that, that he's calling to say, Amos, tell them it's as if the people of Ashdod, this, that's the Canaanites, that's one of the main cities along the Mediterranean coast, not too far away. That's kind of Goliath territory, not too far away from there. I, call them into the grandstand, the taller mountains around Samaria. Samaria is on that hill, as I said, fortress around it, but around it were even taller mountains. So it's as if God is saying, come bring and invite these pagan nations as a witness to what is happening within your walls. Bring the people of Ashdod. Bring the pagan people of Egypt up and let them look in and see what is happening within the walls of Samaria. Make them a tribunal. Make them a test. It really is that bad. You know, they're not called to see the destruction. I'm sure they heard about it 30 years later. They are called to bear witness to just how bad it is in Samaria. See the great tumults within her. See the oppressed in her midst. <clears throat> the tumults within her. It's as if to say in verse 9, uh, and, and it's as if to say, there is such a lack of peace and harmony among the people. And it's because of the choices, how they treat one another, how they oppress one another. And morally, they have just lost their way. When, and God sums it up in this way. They don't even know how to do right anymore. They are lost enough that they don't even know how to do right anymore. It's one thing to willfully choose. We've all been there. We've all been there many times. Willfully choose to do something that we say that we know isn't what God wants us to do. But it's another thing to God, get to a place where you no longer even know what's right and wrong. To get to a place where your life, or the life of your nation, or the life of your people group, is such that you're just storing up, as if adding to the silo of violence and oppression over and over and again and filling it up. You know, what does that look like in our world today or in our nation today? It'd be easy to just wander out to a homeless shelter along the beach in L.A. and begin to count the destruction of drugs and say, the fentanyl overdose epidemic is, is here. here. Here's the cost that, that as a society we are paying for just the choices of, in the world today. But I would challenge you to think back to the families in Laos and Myanmar and Pakistan and Afghanistan, the leading nations that produce opium. Although I'm far from an expert, I have been in Myanmar and, and met people trying to come out, farmers literally trying to come out of their addiction. Because the only way they can make any money in that region is to grow opium. 
And when it's 90% pure, it doesn't take you very long to be addicted, to see your family destroyed, as, as the breadwinner, as the, as the man of the family is addicted. Think of every border crossing between, here, between there and, and our country or, or, or Europe, and the beatings and the bribes and the, and the extortion that happens with every border crossing, the violence that is stored up. Think of the gang members in this country and other countries that get young teens hooked and luring them into their gangs and doing their work. Think of the human traffickers that get young teen girls drugged up to do their bidding. What about the, the destruction of unborn lives? It's certainly been in our news here recently. Since 1973, 63 million lives lost because of abortion. But it's not just in our land, it's around the world. 1.7 billion around the world in the last 40 years. You say, how many is 1.7 billion lives that never, never saw the light of day? That's the entire country of Africa, entire continent of Africa, all the countries there, in all of North America combined in the last 40 years. We go on to more details looking down at verse 13. Let me read from verse 13 down to the beginning of chapter 1 and uh, verse 1 and chapter 4. Hear and testify against the house of Jacob, declares the Lord God, the God of hosts, that on the day I punish Israel for his transgressions, I will punish the altars of Bethel, and the horns of the altar shall be cut off and fall to the ground. I will strike the winter house along with the summer house. And the houses of ivory shall perish. And the great houses shall come to an end, declares the Lord. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan, who are on the mountain of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy. You say to your husbands, bring that we may drink. God is angry. And one of the values of a passage like this that might seem filled with details that are not just a world away, but a, 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 almost three millenniums away, is that there is much for us to hold on to in recognizing what particularly troubles God. Two overarching things really come out in this passage. One is his own people trusting in things more than him. That's what it has to do with these altars. We'll talk about it in a moment. And God is often is deeply bothered by oppressive excesses, especially when it's his people doing it. Trust in things more than the Lord God is, is, is brought out here in this strongholds and, and these horns of the altar. Lars preached last week, and in Amos 1 and 2, the word strongholds repeatedly comes up. Strongholds is, for the most part, just the confidence they had in, in their cities, surrounded, usually on a, on a hill, surrounded by a thick wall, the towers, the citadels on the corners, to look out, to be prepared to fight, the armies within. 
And God repeatedly, in the opening chapters of Amos, when he talked about these these city-states around them, these nations, and pronounced judgment on them, would say, their strongholds will not hold up against me. Even though that was their confidence. And yet God's people, who have wandered so much for him, are here finding, according to what the Lord says, just as much of their confidence is being placed in their stronghold, in the walls of their city, in their army, in their strategic location. They're trusting not only in their strongholds, thinking that they're safe from any disturbance because of their strongholds, they're also looking to the horns of the altar. The horns, just projections out of the altar. It was there in in the true temple in, in Jerusalem. So when they built... The altars in Bethel, there was horns on that altar as well. And there was a thinking that they had that, that if all else failed, if all other refuges were gone, someone could go to that altar as a sacred space and hold on to the horns, hold on to the furniture of the altar and be protected. And here God says, that will not be a protection. This pagan altar, this confidence you're putting in, some religious symbol for you is not a place that is a refuge from my anger. I am to be your refuge, and you're looking to other things. And so the horns of this very altar will soon be cut off, indeed, by the Assyrians. And we get to this beginning of chapter 4, these cows of Bashan, it's, it's, it first seems to us, because it's basically talking about the wealthy women within the city of Samaria, and, and it's important to recognize it probably has very little to do with some uh, insult about their physique. Bashan itself was, was a very helpful place to the, to the land of Israel. Bashan was northeast of Galilee. It was an area that, that saw 40 inches of rain volcanic, very magnificently fertile soil, one person has said about it. It was a place that was considered the breadbasket for Israel, most of their wheat being grown there to make the bread that fed the rest of the nation. It was a place where where the cattle, where the goats, where the the lambs would grow up and be the best looking at the state fair. Even Ezekiel would say about, refer to the fat beasts of Bashan. A compliment to just how fertile and valuable this environment was. And yet, here we see that these wealthy women, according to God's teaching through Amos, are ones that are like the cows of Bashan that have, have grown up and been, been able to, to feast on so much. And whether overweight physically, they were certainly, it's clear, self-indulgent, and self-centered. Their, their, their lifestyle was about them. And so when they would say to their husbands, go get us more drinks, many commentators say part of what probably bothered God is there was a sense of whatever it takes. Whoever has to be trampled on for me to just indulge myself a little more, that's fine. Whatever servant has to run out into the hot sun or skip a meal with the family to get me more drinks is fine. There's a sense in which their cost of their lifestyle involves something their others suffered. 
it's clear here. It's really not a message against wealth. That's a very different topic of being stewards of wealth. It's a topic in which, according to verse 1 of chapter 4, it says, You wealthy women here in Samaria, what I have against you is you oppress the poor, you crush the needy. Quite the opposite of the Proverbs 31 woman, who in verse 20 is one who is said to hold out her hand. A gesture that, that most would say seems to be holding out something for someone in need. Someone less fortunate. Someone that needs some help. And whether, whether in that hand was some money, whether in that hand was some food, whether in that hand was, was an invitation to, to, and directions to a food bank or whatever it might be, there was an open hand that God applauds in, in Proverbs 31 of the woman that holds out her hand. But then it also says in that same verse, she reaches out her hands to the needy. She reaches out her hands to connect. She reaches out her hands in kindness. She reaches out her hands to give a hand up. In 1987, a very famous picture circulated around the globe. You recognize the person I know on the left. Princess Diana was just 26 years old in this picture. This picture changed the lives of many people. It's a picture of somebody with great influence shaking the hand in 1987 with someone with AIDS. It's a man in that picture. He didn't want to be photographed. It was at a time, and some of you are younger than those years. I was in medical school during those years, and I remember just thinking how significant, even in the medical profession, there was of the fear of of the contagiousness and what would happen with a disease that at that time was an absolute death knell, if you had that. And... Knowing the, the stigma and knowing the, the fear around the world of people with AIDS, she entered into a place, I think this was just outside of, of London, and asked if it would be okay for her to shake hands and have that be photographed. She changed the world with her willingness to open her hands and, and to reduce the stigma and fear of many among the isolated victims of AIDS at that time. The last thing is a fearful warning to God's people. Let me read two more verses. The last item in your bulletin. Verse, chapter 3, verse 12. Thus says the Lord, As the shepherd rescues from the mouth of the lion two legs, or a piece of an ear, so shall the people of Israel who dwell in Samaria be rescued. Chapter 4, verse 2, the Lord has sworn by his holiness that the days are coming upon you. I'm sure verse 12, about a couple of legs in the ear makes perfect sense to you. But in case it doesn't, it looks back to Exodus 22. Looks back to to just some of the rules and, and regulations they had among the Jewish people. 
that God had actually laid down. If you were looking after someone else's animal, and, and that animal uh, was struck by lightning, or that animal was, was torn apart, to, to show as an act of honor, an act really of good faith, you would not be held responsible if, if while on your watch that animal died, if it was totally out of your control. But to show that you had not sold the animal for profit, you hadn't stolen the animal and hid it away, you were required to show what was left of that animal that was killed or torn apart, maybe by a beast. And so here the lion who roars against iniquity, the lion who after a time is saying, I will come and punish you, is now saying, all that will be left to show of you is a couple of legs and a tattered piece of an ear. It's a graphic image of the judgment to come. Well, in this passage, I have to ask the question, what will we do? What will you and I do in response to a passage like this that, that looks back so many years, that seems to have many issues in which seem so very different from, from us today? But as we look to, to the issues of, of human nature and God's standards, we recognize those are the same. Those are the same. Well, Amos will give us in the next few chapters really two options. He'll give us the option in, in chapter 9 uh, that says, I will fix my eyes upon them for evil and not for good. The first option is, is to so ignore God's standards, to lo- so lose one's way that God will look for punishment against a people. The other option that he'll say in verse chapter 5 is, seek me and live. Option two, please. Seek me and live. So let me ask the question, what is our response? Do we see that the more things change, the more things stay the same? That God hasn't changed? That what he loves hasn't changed and what he abhors hasn't changed? Amos sends a clear message that God cares about how people treat people. I honestly am not totally sure how much God cares about littering and clean air, good education system, your grades or your promotions, your next vacation, your golf game, election fraud. I don't say that honestly to be in any way silly or to demean any of that. As as it affects people, I think God cares about any number of things. But there's an old saying about majoring on the majors, of getting the things that are so abundantly clear and so vitally important correct, and not getting derailed by getting lost in the weeds with all one's attentions and energies and focus on things that are of lesser importance. Not no importance, but lesser importance. And what I think a passage or even a whole book like Amos is pointing out is that God cares deeply about how people treat other people. He certainly cares about that among you and me who claim that we're his people. But he cares about that 
looking around the, the, the cities of Samaria and the nations around them. He cares how others around the world, whether they name God as God or not, he cares deeply about how people treat other people. So what do we do with that? I, I struggle, quite honestly, to, to wrestle with how some of these issues of those era relate exactly, at least to me personally. I guess one of the things that I want to, to focus on in just my last few minutes is, is the question, how can we, having seen what God abhors and just in an in a ancient history, an example of that, how can we run the other direction as far as we're able to with God's help? How can we run away from the bad Samaritans to what Jesus, 800 years later, will hold up as the good Samaritan? It's happened in history. Can you imagine a child giving up sugar? None of the kids here said, I'm willing to give. Vivian, would you give up sugar? Oh, no way. I know you wouldn't. I don't blame you. But you know what, Vivian? About 200 years ago, there was a man who took over for William Wilberforce in the Parliament of England. His, his name uh, was uh, Thomas Buxton. And in the 1820s, as Wilberforce, in the, the fight he would bring to Parliament year after year against the slave trade, when he was getting older in his years, he turned things over, or at least Thomas Buxton really became the key leader within Parliament in terms of fighting against slavery. And you know what Buxton would say in his later years about what got him to that place? He would say, as I was a young boy, my older sister, I think her name was Anna. Yeah, it was. It was my older sister, Anna. I think she was about 14 at the time. Refused to eat sugar. Because she, like many other children in England at that time, and many adults as well, refused sugar knowing that it came from the sugar plantations in the Caribbean and was the result of slave labor to get it to their table. And Buxton would say, my 14-year-old sister began to show me the way of how you protest against injustice in the world. And it lit a fire in him that would carry him to the halls of Parliament some years later. But what about today for us? That's 200 years ago. Almost that far. What about for us? Because I, I know, at least for me, I'm going to leave here and within a mile, I'm going to hope for green lights. I'm going to hope for green lights because at the left turn lane from Broadway onto Littleton Boulevard, I know that I'll see, if not one, two, or three people. I don't know if they're homeless or not, but they will be begging. And despite studying this passage for 20 hours or more to do my best here for you, I will not know what to do. I will not know whether to look the other way, to just not have eye contact and that'd be awkward. I'll not know if just hoping honestly for a green light to not have to pause is something that just totally bothers God or is okay. I will struggle with, with feelings that at times I've had of saying, I wonder what they did to get there. I wonder if they're doing anything to not be there next week. 
I'll, I'll, I'll hear in my mind things that I've heard from other people who care about the poor that say a handout is not going to be that helpful. And then I'll think of some of you with the starfish analogy and say, I just threw a starfish in. Leave me alone. <laughs> but what I do know is that within a half mile from that corner is a place called North Littleton Promise that a friend of mine who works as a Christian brother told me about just recently, whose very mission statement is to build life-giving relationships with immigrant kids and families. And if you were to look on their website, you could literally get there in about five minutes from here, you would see pictures and the evidence of a gospel-oriented love that is seeking to help immigrant children and their families. Even closer to that very intersection, just a block away, is Love, Inc., where a good friend of mine five years ago went on staff. He asked me to write a letter of recommendation when he was coming on staff, leaving his job in corporate America. And one of the questions that was raised in just the letter of reference was, what qualifies him for this job? And I thought to myself, and I've had to write a number of letters of reference and recommendations over my years, I thought I've never read, done, filled one of those out where I thought, the fact that this person is applying for this job should be enough to make you hire them. Because here at his mid-50s, a few years ago, he was leaving corporate America and a very nice job to work on far less and has been amazingly effective himself in just helping, as he says, to, do, to, to reach out and to lift up people in the area. I said, Terry, we were just literally talking yesterday, I said, what, what do you see that encourages your heart? I said, I'm preaching on Amos 3. Everybody's heard all this before, I'm sure. Very familiar with this passage. I said, it's a passage that just causes us to wrestle with are there ways that we might be oppressing and holding down or just not even being paying attention to the issues of, of people in the world today? Fearing that we'll leave that to the liberal church. They don't talk about Jesus, but they talk about those things. So I better not kind of go there. I don't want to be lumped in with that. And yet Jesus, the God of the scriptures, talk so much about how we treat other people. He said, one of the things that we talk around here is redemptive compassion. Redemptive compassion, what a great phrase. The idea that what Jesus did on the cross for us qualifies us to at least have an example. Have an example for how we will seek to love deeply those around us to participate in the broken world around us. And he talked about we do our very best as we mobilize churches and partner with, with churches because we, we need to work more broadly together to see how to address these issues. I, I, I said, uh, Terry, what's, what, what are your goals? He said, we try to not give a hand out, but a hand up, to, to lift them up. He said the process can be long, the process can be challenging, and some people for quite a while, don't want to reach back and be pulled up. So I said, Terry, what is the opposite of what I'm going to be preaching about, of what God so dislikes, this self-absorbed, this, this self-focused, this self-centered living 
that whether we realize it or not, at times can, be, can have us immune or, or pushing away the concerns of, of people less fortunate to us. He says, well, I see it in people like one of the brothers that supports our ministry. In a sense, he's given us permission that when we see somebody who, who, who is trying to make a plan for their lives to improve their lives, and, and they've decided to be accountable to that, and they've decided to have some skin in the game, to put not just their time, but at least what they can of their resources, he says, I know I can go to this... I know I can call this man and tell him what the need is, what the gap is, and that need will be met. I said, Terry, any other examples? He said, there's something about seeing a woman who is full of grace, the Lord is blessed with just a decent life, come and put her toe in the water of, of helping out in some way. And a few weeks later, pull up in her car that's kind of a nice car for one of our meetings, one of our times where we're maybe coaching some of these folks, helping them with life skills. And she opens the door of her car, gets out, and then you think she's getting her handbag. She's getting her notebook in the back seat, and she opens up the back seat of her car and out tumbles a family that she worked with the week before that she realized didn't have a ride this week. That's, to me, modeling the good Samaritan and not the bad Samaritans that so troubled the great and holy God that we serve. I don't know what it looks like for each one of us. I'm still sorting out what it looks like for me. It seems to me in some of these issues in the world that God calls some within a church family to give a significant amount of energy and time and even resources to something like one of those well, God-honoring, redemptive, compassion ministries. But I think he calls all of us to be encouraged by those that are, to get behind them and get behind as a church as we can, and above all, to care as the God holy God of this universe cares about the people near and far to us. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this passage. Lord, I pray that you would direct our hearts to be in line with yours. You would enable us to care as Jesus cared about those in his world. Give us the strength and direction to do that. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.